Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to uh, John chapter 8. We're going to continue our study through the, the Gospel of John this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the passage we're going to be studying together is printed there for you in the bulletin. And uh, before we uh, turn to God's Word, uh, just a couple brief announcements. Uh, the first is that uh, Nora Harvey, is Nora here? Nora? No? Nathaniel, I thought I saw Nathaniel. Anyways, Nora Harvey is an uh, uh, in, intern with RUF, our, our uh, campus ministry, and uh, she just went to assessment and passed assessment. It was a multi-day uh, event to become a staff person with RUF, which means she was only going to be here temporarily. Now she's going to be here for a more long term, so we're uh, really excited. So if you see Nora, uh, give her a high five, hug, say, hey, we're so glad you're sitting around. Yeah, yeah. Who's not here? We can clap for her. So... Uh, so, uh, so that's one announcement. The other thing is I just want to uh, uh, commend the, the kids who uh, turned in notes from the sermon last week. It, it's just been just a joy to read these, read the insights that kids are coming up with, see what they, they got from the sermon. And uh, so please keep doing that. Keep posting them. And uh, our kids uh, post their notes. They can, uh, we have some uh, four-by-six cards out in the lobby that they can use to try to write down the main points from the sermon. And you can post them on the board uh, back in the hallway by the restrooms. And uh, this week I also got a, a pretty creepy picture that last week's sermon was on the devil. And I got a pretty creepy picture of the devil from, from uh, Gwyneth Schwant. And, you know, as soon as I saw this picture, it made me think of Genesis 4, when the Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And, uh, and I thought, there's the devil crouching like a lion, ready to, to pounce in. Uh, creepy, but wow, let's... Be on guard against our enemy. So, uh, so anyways, uh, kids, keep that up. I, I really encourage you, and I'm, I'm grateful uh, to, to read uh, what you get down every week in, in the sermon. So uh, we're going to turn now to John chapter 8. Uh, we're in John 8, and uh, starting in verse 48, and you can uh, follow along right there in the bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word, your word that reveals to us who you are, the invisible, the immortal, sovereign Lord of all creation. And uh, we see in your word the great fellowship of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the great mystery of our faith. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would now come and teach us from Jesus' words, the words of truth, and that those words would uh, lead us to, to both faith in him and obedience. And uh, so we pray that you would be our teacher now, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in our fifth week studying John chapter 8. And I know, you know, as we go week to week, it's hard to remember what each passage was, even though all these passages go together. And, uh, you know, there's one theme that is, is really infused in every verse, pretty much, of John chapter 8. And I, I realized this theme when, it, when our home group was talking about a couple weeks ago, one of these passages from John 8. And, uh, you know, Jesus throughout this passage is constantly talking about his father. You know, he's, in, he's having this dispute with all these Jews, and they're having these debates back and forth. He's in Jerusalem. And pretty much every sentence he talks about his relationship to the father. I know the father, and I say what the father tells me to say, and I do what the father tells me to do. And then, you know, someone in the group made the comment, and they pointed out that uh, this chapter is like a glimpse into the relationship of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when Jesus is talking about his Father and his relationship with the Father, he's showing us what God is like. And as soon as they said that, I was like, oh yeah, that is the main theme of this whole chapter, is the relationship of the Father to his Son, Jesus. The relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the life of the Trinity, that's what we're going to talk about today. And if you're here and uh, you're not a Christian, maybe you're not familiar with the word Trinity. What does Trinity mean? Well, uh, as I mentioned, Jesus frequently talks about his Father. And then at the end of this passage, you maybe caught that kind of cryptic saying that uh, Jesus says in verse 58. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What does that mean? Well, Abraham lived almost 2,000 years before Jesus lived. And Jesus is saying before Abraham was, actually before the world even formed, I was with my father. And so he has this existence that goes even before the universe was created. But then he doesn't just say before Abraham was, I was. What does he say, that weird statement? Before Abraham was, I am. And for these Jews who are listening to him, they would have known that he's referring to Exodus chapter 3. When Moses met the Lord and the Lord told Moses, my name is, I am that I am. And so when Jesus says before Abraham was, he is saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. It's not only that I existed with the Father before the worlds were made, but I am God. And so even though the Bible says that there is only one God, that one God exists in a three-person community The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But there's not three gods. Three persons, one God. And this is a mystery. Uh, But Christians throughout history have said, this is the defining belief that makes you a Christian. 
believing in the Trinity, knowing the Trinity. And some of you, maybe you grew up in the church and you say, I don't get the three persons and one God. You know, the math doesn't make sense in my head. I don't know how that works. Why do we say that that's so important? Well, it's because saying that God himself is a community means that God is love. And when God is a community, that means that for us to come into God's life means that what? We're going to become a community. And so what we're going to talk about today is Trinitarian community. What is the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How does that shape our life together when we're brought into the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? And, and to do that, I want to point out three things from this passage. This is what they are. The heart of Trinitarian community. That's like, what are the main qualities of a Trinitarian community? The, the life of God. Second, the opposite of Trinitarian community. What Trinitarian community, what is not, and then the source of Trinitarian community. So what is the heart of Trinitarian community, the opposite of Trinitarian community, and the source of Trinitarian community? And there's great insights in this little passage. So three things uh, as we think about our God that we worship and how who he is shapes who we are as a people. So three things this morning. The first is this, the heart of Trinitarian community. And I want to I, I point out three things, three qualities that we see in this passage about God's own life, okay? The first is this. The Trinity is a glory-giving community. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity is a glory-giving community. It's a community where the persons are not grabbing glory for themselves. They're not like narcissists. You know, narcissists always want everyone's attention on them. It's not where they're saying, I'm so awesome. It's saying that others are awesome is what the Trinitarian community is about. And you see how Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father in verse 48. It says, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. He says, I honor my father. I don't seek glory for myself. I seek glory for my father. He says his whole life is about giving glory to his father. But then what does he say later in the passage? In verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. So he says, I don't seek my own glory. I seek the glory of the Father. But then he says, same with the Father. The Father doesn't seek his glory. He, the Father glorifies the Son. So there is a mutual glory giving. And you know, that's a really helpful thing to observe. For some of you who've wondered, you know, you read through the Bible and you see God's always talking about how he wants people to give him praise and give him glory and I will share my glory with no one else. And you, you think about, you know, if you ever met someone like that who was, wanted everyone to tell them how awesome they are all the time, we, what would we think about that person? We would think, well, that person's insecure and why do they need the glory all the time? Why are they so needy? And is God needy like that? And then when we finally come to this passage where we get a glimpse into God's life through Christ... We, we realize that God, the Father is glorifying the Son, and the Son's glorifying the Father, and the Spirit is glorifying the Father and the Son. It's a glory-giving community, not a glory-taking community. And so when God says, I want you to give me glory, he's inviting us into that community of, of mutual glory-giving. And I'll tell you what's so amazing. 
Because you would say, you know, when I become a, you become a Christian, you might say, oh, well, you know, it makes sense. I'm going to give glory to God. He's my creator, and Jesus is my savior, and the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. And I'm going to give glory to them. But then the Bible says we come into that life, and God glorifies us. It says that we're going to be glorified in Christ. And if you read Romans chapter 2, even more amazingly, Romans 2 says, you know, blessed is the man whose praise does not come from man but comes from God, that God will actually glorify and praise us. And that makes us blush. And we say, no, we're not, we don't need glory. You be glory. And what he's doing is wrapping us into this whole community of glory giving. And then the New Testament says that it's not just us that come in as individuals into the glory giving, but we all as a community. So he says that's the defining quality of the church, right? Philippians 2 says, esteem one another better than yourselves. Romans 12 says, outdo one another in showing honor. We become a community that's defined by esteeming others better than ourselves, kind of glorifying and praising uh, others. And isn't that the kind of community that we all long to be a part of? You know, have you ever been in a workplace where everyone's trying to, like, get ahead and push everyone else down? They want to make sure they get credit for everything that's done. And it's just like everyone's fighting with each other versus being in a workplace where people see even the smallest bit of good work. And they're like, that was amazing. And they're telling other people about the things that you did. And you're telling other people about things that they did. It's a glory-giving, a praise-giving community. And when we come into the life of the Trinity... We become a praise-giving community. And, you know, C.S. Lewis has a, uh, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he has an amazing chapter called A Word on Praising. And you could go look it up and read it. It's a fabulous chapter. And he, where he's answering the question, you know, we're, so we're going to be praising all the time in heaven? You know, is that like we're just going to be in church for eternity? That's what heaven is for the life to come? And some of you are like, oh, man, that sounds rough. You know, I, is, I love the Lord. I do. But, and what are we going to be doing? And so he has this whole chapter on praising. And, and this, I'm going to read you. This is a little bit of a long quote, but it's so good. I got to do it. So this is what he says. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time, most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. The good critics found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrowed the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy and unaffected man, even if luxuriously brought up and widely experienced in good cookery, you know, if you grew up eating amazing food and, you know, your mom was an amazing chef, says even those who grew up that way could praise a very modest meal. The deceptic and the snob found fault with all. And then this is, this is the line that I think is so powerful. He says, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. 
The sound of health in a human being is praise. Praise for God. Praise for anything that God's made. Anything that's beautiful. Praise is just easily flowing out. And the sound of a healthy church is praise. Regular praise and thanks to God. And praise to the people around and how God is working in he, each other. And so first, the, the heart of a glory, you know, of a Trinitarian community when we come into God's life, what's it like? What kind of community is it? First thing is glory-giving community. Now, one of the things that keeps us from being a kind of praise-giving community is that, you know, we're insecure. And, you know, we want to hide our flaws from one another. And so in order to kind of help us deal with our insecurity, we're often like putting other people down. and We don't want other people looking too good. And so to go with the praise-giving community, there's a second quality we see in this passage is that the Trinity is a transparent community. The Trinity is a transparent community. And you see how Jesus describes his uh, relationship with his father, verse 55. Jesus says, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. And, you know, to know someone in the Bible is, is always a statement of, of intimacy. Uh, for example, in Genesis chapter 4, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve. Now, when it says that Adam knew Eve, it doesn't mean they're acquaintances. It means he went into the tent with her and he knew her intimately. And so to know someone is intimacy. Or it says in 2 Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. He watches his children. He cares for them. He's tied to them closely. And so when Jesus says he knows the Father, he's saying that there's an intimacy between him and the Father. There's a transparency. The Father has not hidden anything from his Son. And earlier in the chapter, in John chapter 8, Jesus says this. I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. It says the father keeps nothing hidden from the son, and the son knows intimately the desires of his father. You know, in another place, Jesus describes his relationship with the father as the father is in the son, and the son is in the father. And, then, and also the spirit is in the son. Jesus has the Holy Spirit in him, but also everything that Jesus does, he does in the spirit. And so the, the, uh, the relationship is mutual indwelling. It's like they live inside of one another. And, you know, that's a frightening thing. You imagine, like, if you lived inside my head and you could see everything that I was thinking, and you'd think, wow, you are a strange, weird person. I'm not sure I want to be in there. And, that, uh, and yet that's the relationship they have with one another. Nothing is hidden. And so uh, when we come into the life of the Trinity, we become a transparent people as well. And, you know, my, my, uh, my discipleship group has been reading a book called A, a Praying Life. And one, in one of the early chapters, Paul Miller, who's the author, has a section called The Real You, where he talks about how one of the big, biggest obstacles of prayer to knowing God is that you know, we often put on uh, kind of religious fashion, like a religious mask as we prepare to present ourselves to God so that our prayers are acceptable to him. And, and then our prayers become not who we really are, what we're really facing in our life. This is what he says. He says, the only way to come to God is by taking off any spiritual mask. The real you has to meet the real God. He is a person. 
You hear that transparency. The real you has to meet the real God. So instead of being frozen by your self-preoccupation, talk with God about your worries. Tell him where you are weary. If you don't begin with where you are, then where you are will sneak in the back door. Your mind will wander to where you are weary. In bringing your real self to Jesus, you give him the opportunity to work on the real you, and you will slowly change. Trinitarian life is about our real self being known by God and being known by others. And you know, if you've been in the church for very long, you know that within the church, this is the place that many people will tell other th- others things that they've never told anyone else. I know that's happened to me in this church. I know it's happened in home groups. I know it's happened in discipleship groups. I know that it's happened over coffee where people said, there are things that I've not told anyone for decades of my life. And it wasn't until I came into the church that I knew someone would listen to me and I, and I could open up and they could see who I really was and be known. This is the, tr- the uh, transparency of life with God. And when these two things come together, you have a, you know, a community that easily praises, finds anything to praise about the Lord's work among us, and a place that's transparent. There's honesty. We are, our true selves have come here. It is powerful. And Jesus says that it's so powerful that a third thing happens, a third quality of the community. It's not just that the Trinity is a glory-giving community and a transparent community, but third, the Trinity is a life-giving community. And twice Jesus says that when we are with him, when we know him, we will never die. You see this in verse 51. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And in verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now, some of you wonder, like, what could that possibly be talking about? That we, you know, there's been Christians throughout history who have known Jesus, and they all died. And so why is Jesus saying that you will never taste death? Well, I remember I, I went to a conference uh, several years ago. Dallas Willard was a, a, f- a philosopher at the University of uh, Southern California, and he, w- he also wrote books on spiritual formation. And I went to a conference. I'd never really heard of Dallas Willard, and I went, uh, went to this conference, and it turns out Dallas Willard had cancer, and this was his, the final public speaking event of his life. I think everyone else in the room knew that except for me. And, I was like, and so, so it was a very you know, somber uh, mood to the room. And he talked about dying, and he says that when you are in Christ, Jesus says you will never taste death. When you come to your final minutes, your final hour, you will pass into the next life, and it will almost be like seamless You won't even realize that you've died because you are in God's presence and you have his life and you have eternal life. And, you know, some of you might wonder, how could I ever have a peace like that when I face death? And what this passage is telling us is that eternal life is not something that you start after you die. Eternal life is something you start right now. Because the life that existed before there was a universe was the life of the community of the Trinity. And the life that's going to exist after you die is the life of the Trinity. And so that's why uh, Jesus later in John 17 is praying to his father. And this is what he says. He says, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
Eternal life, by definition, is coming into the community of the Trinity. And what this is saying is that this kind of community is what life is all about. You know, so many of us, we have goals for our lives. You have a dream. Like, if everything went right in your life, if, you're, if all your dreams came true, what would your life look like? What's on that list? For many people, they say, well, i got a job that I just love, I'm good at, makes good money. i got a house that I can afford, and it's beautiful, and, and, or maybe I fall in love, or maybe I have skills and things that I'm good at. Maybe I have lots of friends. And what Jesus is saying is that true life is about knowing the life of the Trinity, life in God. And I think for many of us, when we hear about, oh, I want to be about God's glory-giving, transparent, life-giving community is like, yeah, my heart longs for that. I mean, maybe you've even experienced things like houses and good jobs, and you realize, no, that, is, that didn't satisfy me. This is the thing that satisfies me, is because it is true life. But the other thing that we have found is that this kind of community is something that's not natural for us. It's something we long for, and yet something that is really hard for us to experience. Why don't we experience it? And so the second thing that I want to talk about is not just the heart of Trinitarian community, what it's like, but the opposite. And the opposite of Trinitarian community. And, you know, Jesus is being confronted in this chapter with a group of people who are hostile to his vision for life and God. And when, so we say, what is the opposite of Trinitarian life? There, there are two things that we see in verse 48. Says so the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The opposite of Trinitarian community from that verse is racist demonizing. That's what you see in that verse racist demonizing. I want to talk about each of those. So, first, the opposite of Trinitarian community is racism. And in verse 48, this is what they say Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? And, of course, to see that that's a racist statement, you need to know who the Samaritans are. So let me just give a little bit of background. A thousand years before Jesus lived, the kingdom of Israel was divided in two, into a northern and a southern kingdom. And the capital of the northern kingdom was called Samaria. And in the 8th century, the Samaritans of the northern kingdom were invaded by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians took them into exile, and the northern kingdom, they intermarried with these Assyrians, and then they started worshiping all the Assyrian gods. And so, so the people of the southern kingdom, who are the Jews in this passage, saw those in the northern kingdom as a, an inferior mixed race and as religious heretics. And, uh, and so when they say to Jesus, you are a Samaritan, it's like a racist slur. And I think it's important to recognize that these Jews that Jesus is talking to, they are God's people. They were chosen by God to be a light to, the, to all the nations, to all the ethnic groups of the world, to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. And they had lost a vision that they were chosen not just for themselves, but for all people groups. And actually, if you read the New Testament, probably the biggest pastoral issue in the letters of the New Testament is racism. Because what was happening in the church was Jesus brought together people from every ethnic group and they came into communities like this and now they had to be families with one another. And if you read the books of Romans, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, four of the Apostle Paul's most crucial letters, 
the primary pastoral issue that he is dealing with is Jews and Gentiles that are now worshiping together, and how are they going to do that? Racism has always been an issue in the church and in the Trinitarian community that God is building here. And I'd say, you know, it's not just racism, of course. There's, there's cultural divisions that divide us. There's socioeconomic divisions that divide us. And, you know, I should say that if you're here and you say, you know, that's one of my problems with the church. It's this institution throughout history that's been racist. And I'll tell you, the history of the church is mixed. Yes, there's racism. And the church has also been used to fight against racism by God. The, uh, but the, the thing that history tells us more than anything, especially this moment in history, is that even though Jesus is bringing in flawed humans into his church, that means there is going to be racism in the church. Jesus is not racist. And the reason we know that is because every ethnic group of the world is attracted to him. In this day, people of every color, of every culture are flocking to him. In China, the church is expanding like crazy. In Africa, the church is expanding. People are coming to Christ. In South America, anyone who says that Christianity is a white man's religion is just not looking at the data of what the church is in, in our day. You know, I just have been uh, seeing articles about revivals happening in, in Iran right now. In every nation, people are drawn to Jesus. And so the first thing that we see is that the opposite of Trinitarian life is racism. Second thing is the opposite of Trinitarian life is demonizing. You see that there again in verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's not just that they disagree with Jesus, but they say that Jesus has a demon. And again, you see that in verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Now, when we say someone has a demon, that person has moved into a new category with us. You know, if you're having a theological debate and you're like, you don't, you know, want to hear the opinion of the demon, you know, we got to hear two sides of the story. The demon has an, an opinion and we got to give him a voice. No, you need to silence the demon. You don't listen to demons. And demonizing is, of course, a massive issue in our political culture right now. Progressives can't imagine even having a rational conversation with a Trump supporter. And conservatives say that the left has become so radical that they have no point of contact with them. Demonizing is one of the things that is most severely tearing our society apart. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to even have dialogue. And it's possible for that demonizing to come into our church, into our community. And I think that for each one of us, we have to realize that God did not demonize us. God cares about your opinion, which is amazing. He knows everything. He know, he's sovereign. He has a plan for all of history. And what does he command you to do? To pray to him to tell him your opinions about how his church should grow and, and how his mission should go. He wants to hear. He takes your opinion seriously, which is incredible. And uh, he treats you with respect. And so that same respect must be in the church. And, uh, you know, I want to give one thought to us uh, about specifically about political dialogue. You know, I want our church to be a place where differing political views can be hashed out, debated, discussed, without letting those political thoughts be elevated to, uh, you know, be equivalent to our loyalty to Jesus. Our ultimate loyalty is that Jesus is king. He is the king of kings. That's our political allegiance. And I want to just give you one thought. How do you, how do you have 
healthy dialogue. And uh, there, there's a guy, N.T. Wright, is a, is a New Testament scholar who is an expert in Second Temple Judaism and the world of the New Testament. And I've heard him be in debates and lectures and a, and a number of times. And something that he often begins his lectures with is he tells everyone, you know, in the crowd, in the audience, I'm pretty sure that a quarter of whatever I'm about to say to you is wrong. And I'm just not sure which quarter it is. And three quarters is right that you need to hear about. And I got a quarter that's wrong. So I actually need to listen to my opponent. Because the person who's most likely to show me the quarter that I have wrong is my opponent. Because they're going to go for my weak spot. And they know where my weak spots are. And I just thought, imagine that we did that. We came into any disagreement, debate, dialogue, assuming a quarter of what I think is wrong, and I need to find out what that wrong is from you. And what that is, when we act that way, that means that our community is marked by humility. We bring into our relationships humility. And that guards us against racism and demonizing. And this kind of humility also makes us a glory-giving community, a praise-giving community, a transparent and honest community. And so the question is, where does that kind of humility come from? Well, that's our final point. We've talked about the heart of Trinitarian life, the opposite of Trinitarian life. But lastly, the source of Trinitarian community. And twice in this passage, Jesus mentions the importance of keeping his word. You see that there in, uh, in verse 51. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And again in verse 55, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Now the word in the book of John is always the gospel. And you see what, what Jesus says again in verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The, announce, the gospel is the announcement of who Jesus was. This is the word that we must hold on to. And the gospel says that we were all welcomed into the life of the Trinity by grace. We are all undeserving sinners. Nothing in us merited God's love and approval. Jesus has forgiven our sins and paid for them on the cross. And God the Father has opened his arms to us and said, come and be my child. And when we believe that, when we hold on to that truth, that means there is no one who walks through these doors that we can look down on. How could we ever look down on anyone who walks through these doors? No matter what is happening in their life, we didn't do anything to deserve God's grace. And if God can give his grace to me with how messed up I am, of course he can give it to you too. That word, that message of grace is the word Jesus says we must keep. We must hold on to it. We must keep it central. We must talk about it. We must get it deep into our souls and get it into our conversations. That is why every week we are preaching the gospel of Christ over and over again because it is the source it is the power of a Trinitarian community. And when we know the glory-giving, transparent, life-giving character of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we will be washed both of our racism and our demonizing spirit. And we will know the life that God has enjoyed from before the worlds began. And we will enjoy that life into worlds that are still to come. Praise be to God. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we uh, praise you that in sending your son, we, you reveal to us the great love, the great union that you have known with the Son in the Spirit in all eternity. Lord, we long for our community to be defined by that desire to give glory, um, the willingness to be transparent, that we may know your eternal life even now. Guard us against both racism and demonizing, that here at this church, many would experience the welcome, the open arms of the Father that are extended to us in Jesus, our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.